The purpose of John's gospel is to show you that Jesus is the only Savior. And through believing in Jesus, you have eternal life. Well, our text this morning is John chapter 16. So let's, let's open our Bibles to John's gospel. Our text is actually John 16, beginning in verse 16, down through the end of the chapter, verse 33. John 16, verses 16 through 33. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be a blue hardback one near you in one of the chairs around you, and you'll find our text on page 902. 902 in the Blue Bibles. And today we finish our walk through Jesus' farewell discourse. And next week, we're going to have the glorious privilege of hearing Jesus pray, even for us, as we study John chapter 17. So as we've seen in recent weeks, Jesus is addressing the disciples in the midst of his final moments before he will go to the cross. We have listened to Jesus deal directly and honestly with his disciples, not pulling any punches about what lies ahead of them. We've also witnessed how little, if any, of what Jesus said the disciples were actually grasping. Yet, Jesus patiently walks with them teaches them. He gives them grace and truth in every sentence he utters to them. I mean, Jesus' patience with his disciples should help us understand how God relates to us, shouldn't it? He is God in the flesh, the word of God through whom everything was made that was made. He dwelled among us, the creator with creatures, patiently teaching and correcting from a heart of love. On a week where many of us are going to give thanks for many different things, our text actually gives us another aspect of the person of Jesus for which we ought to be thankful, namely his patience. The disciples continually underperform, but Jesus does not cast them off. No, he loves them with patience. There's a beautiful reality for all of us if we will take it. Jesus doesn't relate to us differently than he relates to them. He is patient with us. Our slowness to understand, our inability to fully grasp, our impetuousness, our faults do not deter Jesus from engaging with us. No, dear disciple of Jesus, our faults are precisely what draws Jesus to us. And in our text today, Jesus will plainly relate to his disciples how the relationship they have had with him up until this point is getting ready to fundamentally change. And he's going to explain to them how they will be able to continue to relate to him even after he's gone. So let's read John 16, verses 16 through 33. A little while... And you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? 
what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into this world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Relationship changes are a given. Changes in relationship are just a reality. Relationship change can happen with proximity, moving away from or moving closer to individuals. Relationship change can happen through age, as we grow and enter different phases of life. Relationship change can happen through pain, with wrongs and difficulties and hurts. Relationship change can be desired, like the man who is looking to move out of the friend zone and into a romantic relationship. Or a woman seeing a man and desiring to pursue or be pursued. Relationship change can be undesired or desired, slow or abrupt, beautiful or ugly. That relationships change is a constant, but the question for most is how and why do they change? Why do some relationships grow closer while others grow apart? 
Why do some relationships succeed and others fail? Why do some relationships last for a lifetime and others only for a season? A lot of those questions are often answered by how the change in the relationship happens or whether one or both parties embrace or resist the change. The relationship between Jesus and his disciples up to this point has looked a very certain way, very particular way. Even though, let's be honest, his disciples rarely had a clue what was happening most of the time. At certain points, they grasped that Jesus was not a man, that he was the Messiah, that he was unique. Yet even with these moments, the reality of their day-to-day life, that they day-to-day existed with God in the flesh, seemed to escape them regularly. Yet, even as we looked in our text today, as we've seen in the weeks that we've been in this farewell discourse, that never deterred Jesus in his care for them. Their cluelessness never pushed Jesus away. In fact, he just drew all the more closely to them. And that's what's happening in the text that we just read. The disciples are befuddled. And Jesus is patient, gracious, and tender with them, even as he corrects them. They're only beginning to grasp what's getting ready to happen, and they're not going to fully grasp what Jesus is talking about until it happens. And we saw last week that they aren't going to fully grasp the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus until they receive the Holy Spirit who will teach them all things. Yet, that is drastically different than Jesus in this moment. He knows exactly what's getting ready to happen. He knows exactly what's getting ready to take place. And as his time in this certain form of a relationship with his disciples is drawing to a close, he helps them. He prepares them. He cares for them and showing them how their relationship is going to change, even for the better. So for the rest of our time this morning, I just want to point out two ways Jesus indicates the relationship is going to change between him and his disciples. What changes are going to take place, how they are going to relate to one another. And with each one, we're going to see how the change that the disciples went through actually illustrates our own path as followers of Jesus. So first, the disciples will move through sorrow to joy. The disciples will move through sorrow to joy. So as Jesus opens the passage, as we just read, the disciples, he tells them that he's not going to see them, and then he's going to see them again. Now, in this moment, this statement can see a bit, seem a bit cryptic. It's obviously so to the disciples. Jesus is telling them something, but they're not really grasping what he's trying to tell them. And it's easy to be sympathetic with the disciples at this point, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, what he's saying is, is broad enough that it could mean many things. Is he going on a trip? Will he travel alone and meet up with them later? Yet, in one of the best lines in John's gospel, we have such a beautiful moment of honesty on the lips of the disciples. They're discussing these things among themselves, 
And I love the end of verse 18, where it ends with them saying, we don't know what he's talking about. It's so honest. I, I love this moment for the disciples. We don't get it. I love it. It's real. It's transparent. It's one of the many reasons that I actually believe the Bible is true. If you're a disciple of a made-up religion spreading false information in order to deceive the world about some guy named Jesus, you're going to talk better about yourself than these disciples talk about themselves. But John lets us in on the moment the disciples say, we hear you, Jesus. We have no idea what you're talking about. This, this is a flash of light for them, yet it will quickly fade because in just a matter of moments, they're going to say something pretty foolish and impetuous, and by the end of the text, they'll receive a rebuke, but this is a good moment for them. They aren't puffing out their chests. They're scratching their heads, and Jesus is fully aware of this, and he's patiently Miraculously interjects into their confusion in order to offer them more truth, more explanation. I mean, John gives us another glimpse of Jesus' supernatural knowledge of others' thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. He knows that they want to ask him. He knows their hesitation. Maybe because they'd failed in asking all the wrong questions up until this point. So Jesus volunteers more to his disciples. So he states their unspoken question back to them, and then he explains in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, that may not seem like a really good explanation to you in that moment. It might seem like he's followed up a broad general statement with just another broad general statement. But the words he uses, church, weep and lament, were terms that are specifically associated with death and funerals. The weeping and lamenting, those are specific words that Jesus is using, and they often accompanied or described the loud wailing that attended to Jewish funerals. In fact, that same word that we translate weep is the same word John uses to describe mourners in another event in his gospel, Lazarus' death. So when Jesus says to his disciples, you will weep and you will lament, he is clearly speaking to them in terms of death. But he also says that their sorrow will turn into joy. How can that be? How could death-fueled sorrow actually be transformed into joy? I actually think we have a living parable of how that can happen in John's gospel already. Remember John 11? I just mentioned it. Lazarus 
is dead and rotting in a grave. His family and his friends are devastated. They are weeping and lamenting the loss. There's even a hint of frustration, if not outright anger at Jesus, for not being there to heal Lazarus and to even prevent him from dying. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In the moment of their deep grief, I want to ask you this question and think about it before I answer it. In the moment of their deep grief, what do you think Martha and Mary would most say they needed to have their sorrow turn into joy? In that moment where they were, they were weeping and lamenting, what is the one thing that if you would have asked them, hey, how can I turn your sorrow into rejoicing right now? What's the one thing I could do to make your sorrow become joy? They'd want Lazarus back, right? Like make him alive again. That would make my sorrow become joy. Can, can you make Lazarus live again? And in a living and prophetic prefiguring way, Jesus raises rotting Lazarus to life. He gives them the only thing in that moment that they know will turn their sorrow into joy. And he does it by the word of his power. So in the context of his clear statement that he is going away, and he's coming back, and that your sorrow is going to turn into joy, we, who know how the story goes, spoiler alert, can understand that Jesus has just told us exactly what's going to happen. That there will be a death, and there will be a resurrection. Jesus is going to die, just like Lazarus died in order for the glory of God to be displayed. And Jesus will be vindicated again, just like he was when he raised Lazarus from the dead. The Lord Jesus would die. His disciples would weep and lament, but their sorrow would turn into joy because the one thing they most wanted to happen, the thing that they thought would actually make their sorrows be undone, would come true. Their rabbi, their friend, their master, their Lord would see them again after rising from the grave. Jesus knows it's going to be hard. Jesus knows it's going to be painful. Jesus knows they have no clue what the next few days are going to be like. But he also knows as bad as it's going to get for them, these soon-to-be-broken men will soon-to-be-rejoicing men. If they had ears to hear and eyes to see, they might have made the connection with what happened to Lazarus. But as we already know from the weeks we've just been, that connection would have to wait until the helper came. Then Jesus uses a metaphor, a metaphor common to humanity. He gives a picture of childbirth. Now, it's interesting that to a group of men, he uses a picture of labor and delivery. But Jesus knew the power of a metaphor. Now, these disciples had never given birth, but no doubt they had likely seen the anguish and reality of pain in childbirth. Perhaps they had even had their own children, and they'd 
seen and witnessed the almost miraculous reality of labor pains with all of its excruciating pain being forgotten in a moment when a mother first held the child whom she delivered and looked upon the beauty of this little human. Moms, I think you understand Jesus in this moment far better than I can. You have experienced the physical exhaustion, the pain, and the trial of carrying and delivering a child. My only job in the child's delivery rooms was to be out of the way. You be uninvolved. You've done enough. But, but you know the discomfort, anguish, and pain is also turning into joy and tear-filled relief. I mean, moms and even dads at this point, when you hear your child's voice for the very first time, when you see his or her face for the very first time, the relief, the joy, it doesn't negate that it was painful, it was hard. It makes it worth it. Sorrow to joy. That's the path of the disciples. And notice the wonderful word of assurance Jesus slips in in verse 22. After using the metaphor, he says, So also you have sorrow now but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And listen to this promise, church, and no one will take your joy from you. Do you see what's happening there? Do you see what Jesus is saying? One experience will be temporary. Another experience will will be eternal. The sorrow will come and fade. The joy will come and stay. What comforting word from Jesus here on the eve of such great pain for his disciples. The pain is coming, but beloved, the pain will be replaced by by joy. The sorrow will turn into joy. And it's similar for us who follow Jesus now, isn't it? You know, we can forget often that the good news of the gospel actually begins with the bad news of our own sin. To believe and trust in Jesus is to be made aware of our guilt before a righteous God. It is to come face to face with the stark reality that the truth, I really am a bad person. And I'm really helpless to change myself. Paul actually calls that godly grief that produces repentance. But the sorrowful reality of our hopelessness is met with the joy of a Savior who says to us in our hopelessness, I have purchased forgiveness for you with my blood. Your evil is great, but my mercy and grace are infinitely greater than what you have done. You failed, but don't worry, for where you have failed, I have succeeded. 
Trusting in Jesus means that we need not live from our sin, but from his grace. That's how a broken, sorrowful sinner becomes a rejoicing saint. And it's also true as we consider the context of this statement too. Jesus has been telling these disciples that the world's going to hate them. The world's going to persecute them. They might even kill them. Yet, the sorrow that they endure for Jesus' name is only temporary. It's true for us, church. The world will hate and persecute all we who follow Jesus. And yet the sorrow we endure in this life for Jesus' name is temporary. The joy that he gives to we, his children, is eternal, unshakable. Suffering is a reality for every human, Christian and non-Christian alike. But for Christians, we can endure suffering not because it's fun or because it doesn't hurt, because we're masochistic. No, we endure because we believe Jesus. We believe Him that our worst sorrows will turn to joy when we see Him face to face. Isn't this what Paul reminds us of in Romans chapter 8, verse 8, 18, excuse me, when he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The disciples will move from sorrow to joy. Right now they're sad with Jesus. Soon they will be rejoicing with a risen Savior. The second thing that we see, the relational change, is the disciples will move from need to provision. From need to provision. Now, beginning in verse 23, Jesus starts to describe how the disciples will ask of the Father how they will ask for his provision. Admittedly, I'm not actually doing something new here. It's not a fundamental change in the relationship. The disciples have very obviously been asking Jesus for all sorts of things, but it's going to change in how how it's carried out. Everything we've seen of the disciples so far shows their constant need. The change here is less about their need in God's provision, but, but more about how that need and provision is going to work in the absence of having Jesus present physically with them. And there's a bit of advanced notice of how the Holy Spirit is actually, this helper that Jesus has been talking about, is actually going to help them enable, help enable them to seek the Lord. Now, I want to offer one clarification here. When I use the word provision, I am not narrowly referring to physical needs. I think the provision that Jesus is highlighting here in this text is what his disciples need to continue following him, not what they need to exist. That's the provision that Jesus had provided in his person. That's what Jesus had been for them. And now that provision that Jesus had given his disciples would be given by the Father, but how? What's it going to look like? How's that relationship going to work? Jesus Jesus actually explains how the relationship has functioned thus far, and he indicates how things are going to change 
after he departs. So look again at verses 23 to 24 to see what I mean here. Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So so think about that, right? What Jesus is saying is, up till now, if the disciples needed anything, they asked their rabbi. They asked Jesus. That was common practice in their society, even more so with Jesus. The disciples were used to talking with Jesus. They were used to listening to Jesus. They were used to asking Jesus to provide for them whatever they needed, whether it was instruction, whether it was leadership or direction. They were used to talking to him, just asking him their questions. Now, it's going to change. It will be the Father that they approach directly in the name of Jesus. Friends, I hope you can hear it. That is a monumental shift. Now, to a Jewish disciple, this is where things just seem too good to be true. Everything they know about approaching God centered around the temple. And it was done through a priesthood who functioned as mediators between God and man. They had to be in the temple with sacrifices to seek the Lord. Now, certainly prayer happened outside of Jerusalem in synagogues, even prayers for need and provision, but there was no name attached to that prayer except Yahweh, the Lord. That was who you prayed to, and that was the name of the God to whom you prayed. Here, listen, Jesus says to these disciples, ask the Father in my name, and he will provide. But what about sacrifice? What about the temple? Isn't using your name, Jesus, blasphemy? Of course not. Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus was the temple that was being torn down and going to be raised again. Jesus is God. To pray in Jesus' name is not just something we attach as a way to end our prayers like some magic spell. No, praying in Jesus' name is to say, God, please provide and glorify your name in the provision. No more would these disciples need to go and find Jesus to ask of him. They could go to the Father and ask in Jesus' name. Their Messiah said, ask the Father and use my name when you do. There's something changing in these disciples here. They rightly understand and worship God as holy, transcendent, highly exalted and lifted up. They know God this way because he revealed himself as such. And yet now they are told by Jesus, you can go to the Father the way I go to the Father. You will have access to him the way I have access to him. Maybe you know the name Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a late and rather famous preacher in the UK who died in 1980. He saw the Lord revive two churches by the preaching of his word. And 
he accumulated throughout his tenure and his decades of preaching the gospel a large number of people who sought him out. So he would often preach on Sundays and after the service go into an office or a receiving room of sorts where many church members and visitors and seekers would line up outside of the office to one by one be counseled and prayed with. And I remember the story that the only people who could interrupt such moments were his grandchildren. They could interrupt their grandpa, and he was not perturbed. In fact, the story goes that he often hid, well, my UK friends will know this, hid sweets, we call it candy. He had candy all around his office so his grandchildren could bust into this room and search for the little treasures that their grandfather had hidden for them in the office. They could interrupt their grandpa, who was not angry to see them, but had actually hidden treasure around the room for them to find. There's something of that here in Jesus' words. God is not too busy for you. It's not as if upholding the universe by the word of his power keeps him so occupied that if you need him, you're going to get a busy signal or a, please leave a voicemail and I'll get back to you later. You're not going to hit an answering service. Church, God is not too busy for you. He's not even put out by you. Jesus says, my father is your father. And you can approach him in my name. This isn't because Jesus represents something to them that the father isn't. No. Look at verses 26 and 27. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. It's not like Jesus had to go and cool the room down for us so that we could go into the presence of the Father. Or he had to make sure that God, hey, let me go and make sure he's in a good mood so that he'll be favorable to your requests. No, what Jesus is revealing here is how his death actually secures a place in the presence of God for his sons and daughters by faith. And as we have believed in Jesus, we experience the same love of God and thus the same access to the Father who loves us. To be sure, we know that God's love didn't start with Jesus. We know that from John's gospel alone already, that it was the Father's love that initiated redemption. The most famous verse in the Bible tells us this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. No, God's love for His people was always present, yet it was the work of the Son, Jesus our Lord, in dying and rising again that accomplished our redemption and opened up the presence of God to every one of His children, regardless of the timing or moment. You see, church, the, the relationship that these disciples had with Jesus would change. They still needed Him, but not in the same way did they need Him in this moment because... Jesus was going to finish the work of redemption through his death and resurrection, then they would, through Jesus, their great high priest, draw near to the heavenly Father in order to ask what they need from the Father. 
For us, this is true as well. Jesus is not here with us physically. And as we have seen, it is to our advantage because he has sent the helper, even the Holy Spirit, who enables us to draw near to the Father through Jesus the Son. Do you, do you know that you can ask the Father for what you need? Do you know that you can do that? He knows what you need, even better than you do. And he wants you to come to him because he loves you. So the question that we kind of come to in this is, is how would the disciples ask of God? How do we then ask of the Father? How does this work? In prayer. In prayer. It's not complicated. It's, it's actually simple. We pray. Now, prayer is hard. Praying is hard, but it's not complicated. We come to the Father in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. That's the only way anyone has access to God. You know, if you're not a Christian, you should know something about this text. The presence of God is not a good place for you apart from Christ. In fact, it's a terrifying place because God is holy, righteous, and perfect and cannot abide the presence of sin. The disciples and Christians can enter the presence of God not because they're better than you. No, they can enter because Jesus is better than all of us. And for believers, our sin was paid for in his death. The blood we owe to enter the presence of the Father was shed by Jesus, his Son. You see, actually, if you're not a Christian, to be in the presence of God apart from Jesus is death. But if you would trust in Jesus, if you would turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you can be welcomed into the presence of God, forgiven fully and freely, righteous through Christ and loved by the Father. Will you trust Him today? Will you trust Christ today? If you have questions about that, you can ask me or anyone who's been up here today. We would love to talk with you about what it means to trust Christ. The need of the disciples continues long beyond Jesus' departure. But listen, church, what Jesus says is that their provision was no less secure when Jesus was gone. It was not that Jesus wouldn't provide for them because he wasn't physically present with them. Their need would be ongoing. And so would the loving provision of their Heavenly Father. And the same is true for us here and now. We come to the Father in Jesus' name to receive all that we need from God for life and godliness. He wouldn't turn these disciples away. He told them so, and He's not going to turn us away. Well, as Jesus draws these two points together in the closing moments of the passage, He in a gripping way, I think combines these two changes in the final portion of his address. Well, I told you the disciples wouldn't always be so humble. And they kind of puff out their chest here a bit by declaring, ah, now 
you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. The disciples who rightly saw that they had no clue what Jesus meant a few minutes ago now claim to have full understanding and vibrant faith. Their confession, though theologically right, he does know all things, is built on a feeble foundation. And the Lord Jesus has no time for chest-thumping overconfidence in his followers. And so he issues a rebuke to them. Or as one scholar actually describes this, he says, no misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. Human pretensions lead only to rebuke. The disciples are in effect saying, okay, Jesus, we get it and we believe because we see all of this and now we understand. And Jesus offers a piercing rebuke, but he follows it up with a precious promise. Jesus knows they don't get it, but he also knows they will because he's going to provide the joy to overturn their sorrow and the provision to overcome their need. Jesus deals plainly with them right now in this moment. He doesn't remove the sting of what is about to happen, but he also makes the bold promise that he will preserve them. Look at how it plays out in the end of our passage in verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Their bold faith declaration wouldn't even last the day. And Jesus isn't condemning them for believing here. Notice what he's doing. He's condemning the prideful heart in their declaration by actually exposing how quickly they're going to flee and abandon him. Now, friends, there is no doubt that the disciples dealt with sorrow for their cowardice and their failure. Yet their colossal failure would be met with the glorious success of Christ. Their sorrow over their own failure would turn to joy as they witnessed the Messiah accomplish the redemption that he had come to do. Sure, the pain of their failure was real, but their failure only served to glorify the riches of their Savior, Jesus. And isn't this also a truth that we need? Our sin, our failures, our apathy, our pride, our utter hopelessness does not scare Jesus away from us. No, that's why he came for us, so that our sorrow may turn into joy by trusting in him. And he does give them this precious promise, even after he says they will abandon him. In verses 33, verse 33 says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What a promise. What a promise. The disciples are assured of the hatred of the world, of persecution by the world, and trouble in the world, and yet Jesus declares that they would have the peace they needed to endure because no hatred, no persecution, no trouble will jeopardize Jesus, their Savior. The disciples would have ongoing needs, even in the hours of their own deaths or exile. They would need Jesus, and they would have him by the helper 
the Holy Spirit. And the peace that they need would flow from the reality that they knew Jesus was victorious. He had conquered the grave. He would never be defeated, and he never will. Isn't this a truth we all need? All of us face trouble, yet we can take heart that the death-conquering Savior, Jesus, has overcome the world and that we are going to be with him. It is this assurance, this promise that can give the disciples the very thing that their troubled hearts so desperately need, peace. Do you remember where this farewell discourse began? It began in verse 14 which opens with this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And Jesus here concludes, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The path from a troubled heart to a peaceful heart is through Jesus. If we have him, we can look at this life with hope and certainty that the one who began a good work in us will carry it to completion, that the relationship between the disciples and Jesus was changing. But in the best possible way, as he secured redemption for them through his death and resurrection and church, so it is with us, We who were once far away have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. He has turned our sorrow into joy. And he has met our every need with his glorious provision. So we might be able to, with peace and confidence in our heart, say glory be to Jesus, our conquering king. Let's pray.